This episode is brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast, hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson. Each month, we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. In this episode, if there's any concern at all that she may have either valvular heart disease or she might have coronary artery disease, then I would not use nifedipine in her. Again, I have no problem using nifedipine concurrently with magnesium, but with any antihypertensive volume status for the patient, if they're profoundly volume depleted, whether it's hydralazine, labetalol, nifedipine, you run the risk for acutely dropping their blood pressure. Welcome back to part four in our series presenting cases from the management of hypertensive disorders of pregnancy according to international guidelines session held at the SMFM meeting this year. In this episode, Dr. James Martin presents case four, HELP syndrome. All right, we're going to move on to case four and Dr. Martin's going to present this. Uh, A pause before we get to this case. I think that you should know that developing guidelines is probably one of the most difficult, contentious, impossible tasks to do. When I sat out on this course with a college and I chose these 16 experts and I sat through all of the sessions, when you look at the ACOG guidelines and distill them down, there are only six recommendations in that entire group of things that has very strong evidence and is just ironclad tight. After we finished this whole process, which took about two years, and then put it into print, more and more things became up for discussion because there are so many chinks in the armor because you don't have enough data to be sure about everything. So what you're hearing is this flux. So that's why the guidelines were released with the quality of evidence and the strength of the recommendation using the grade thing. They were not black and white. But I just wanted to say that because that's what uh, we have heard since the end. And so you have to congratulate the British for doing all the work they did for the NICE guidelines and the Canadians for what they did with the SOGC and, and the others. But the guidelines are a floating target. And as soon as you release them, other information comes out and they are subject to being changed, and it's, it's a very difficult process. And so Gene gave me the most difficult, I think, aspect of this because the guidelines that the college released do not specifically speak to this particular circumstance except to say that you can do something with a case like this, in which this one young patient who's 19 years old comes in at term. She's not less than 34 weeks. She's hypertensive, and when you do the laboratory test to evaluate a patient while she's being evaluated with the basic things that she should have. She's found to be severely hypertensive now and has a headache, and then her CBC comes back and shows that she is thrombocytopenic. So how do you manage this type of patient? So this case four has this kind of data, and there are several things that are clear, and we need to just very quickly go through some basic information that underscores this type of clinical presentation. This is HELP syndrome. This is a form of preeclampsia that is more of an inflammatory than an antiangiogenic form of disease. We would all recognize in this room likely that she has the critical features that we would consider her to have HELP syndrome. 
The classification, you may use this one. You may use just the one with less than 100,000 platelets. We have been using this one for the last 25 years. And obviously, this patient has class 2 HELP syndrome, which becomes important into her management because patients that drop below 50,000 with criteria for HELP are the most seriously ill patients we see with preeclampsia these days. And with this disease disorder, we've known for a long, long time that the most significant piece of morbidity about this is cerebral. Not liver, but cerebral. So stroke is what we want to avoid in these women. And we have five treatment goals in these kinds of patients. We want to prevent them from getting into this class one dangerous area. And we want to shorten the course of disease to the extent we can, both for the mother and the baby, and to do a delivery in an appropriate setting. I don't know that we'll have time to talk about the appropriate setting issue because sometimes you do and you don't have time for this. This area of preeclampsia, is one of the most difficult to study because it's a relatively infrequent issue that we run into as clinicians in the care of patients and not a lot of level, not, not much at all, level one strong data. So the ACOG guidelines don't go as far as I would like them to go in patients like this particular case four. But that reference is what is out there for the care of patients is, as I would suggest, that she be managed. This is a clinical scenario three because you really have patients that have help that can be pre-viable, less than 24 weeks. You could have a second group that's, that's viable from 24 to 34 weeks, let's say, in which you would probably give steroids for fetal lung maturation purposes. You have a third group like this one who is past 34 weeks but undelivered. And then you have a fourth group that comes and, be, and shows evidence of HELP syndrome in the immediate post-delivery period or up to several days thereafter. They're the really dangerous ones. So in this kind of patient, I would start what we would call the Mississippi Protocol or a one, two, three thing where we do preemptive, and preemptive is the critical word here, systemic potent glucocorticoids. And IV dexamethasone has been what we've used for the last 25 years in our institution. The um, key word is preemptive because if you wait as some clinicians have done until the patient is very sick, down in the class one area, perhaps 25,000, whatever, she will not respond to that, and you may have advanced maternal morbidity and even mortality at that point. I can't tell you how many cases I've looked at where the clinician waits until that point in time, and they give the decadron, and they say, well, it didn't work. Well, it didn't work because you didn't use it appropriately. So dexamethasone was recommended to be used like this 20 years ago in a dose of 10 milligrams, which is an arbitrary dose. It's given every 12 hours, and it was given every 12 hours, 10 milligrams, until delivery occurred, and then it was adjusted downward because of some rebound that we experienced in these patients. We've had about 800 patients done, and I guess that's why Gene gave me this case, because we probably have most world experience on this. Some concepts here is that when does liver damage occur in these women? And it occurs before they get into the class one realm. This is Darby's data published last year. So if you wait until the patient's class one, you're again not going to prevent a lot of the liver pathology that you can see in patients with this disorder. And also, you could almost entirely eliminate, at least we have in our patient series, CNS morbidity and hepatic morbidity by this type of approach preemptive use of intravenous dexamethasone. We don't have time to go into all the basic science and publications about that, but that preemptive corticosteroid approach is the fundamental feature. Magnesium sulfate in most of these women can be used, and understand it varies quite a bit across the world, but that is probably important for a number of reasons uh, as user in Cipolla. 
talked about in terms of the neuroprotection effect that it has on the pregnant woman, not to mention the, the benefit that it may have to the unborn uh, preterm baby. Of course, not a factor in this 38-weeker. And then finally, this whole issue that we've talked about extensively today has been the control of blood pressure, which is another critical feature in any preeclamptic. So this slide summarizes the basic approach that's used in this that was written in that paper that has been consistent over the years. And it is uh, adjusted if the patient has eclampsia. And we're going to talk about that, I think, next, so we'll go there. And it's published as this type of scenario. Now, there is one point to make on this, is that steroids do not always work, and they don't work in a preemptive mode if the patient has some other condition. And so the concern that if the patient has a TTP disorder, an SLE condition, or something like that, then you need to be prepared to get your, talking about the obstetric medicine issue, your hematologist involved, very early in the process, if you don't have the expected response to this that you should have in the first 12 to 18 hours, where the platelet count stops its drop and begins to return to normal levels. So that's the summary, I guess, in, in how I think that type of patient should be managed. This is not covered in the ACOG guidelines. It just simply says that you, as a physician, can use this approach. We took as much level one data as we could to make those recommendations that are there. So I'll take any questions. Did you deliver her? Absolutely. They're, they're really... You don't course. wait till 39 weeks? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes you miss the forest for the trees, uh, Artie. Uh, yes, you definitely... This, In fact, the steroids are started. I'm glad you asked the question. The steroids are started. You give them 6 to 12 hours to have the impact, and then the patient does... Her induction has begun. Usually you can ripen and induce and deliver at 38 weeks like that. So. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, you actually just call the state Medicaid office, get clearance from them to deliver the patient and get the perinatal regional center to approve. And after those three steps, within minutes to hours, you deliver the patient. <laughs> Any comments from the panel? I know this should be yeah. a little bit... Uh, we, we really don't believe, and we don't use dexamethasone. Jim said he has 800, we are close to 1,000. We only give corticosteroids for fetal length maturity, 24 to 34 weeks. We don't believe taxamethasone has any benefit after 34 weeks or postpartum period. There is echocrine review since Pete believes in all of this that say again, it's not really beneficial <laughs> regarding our improved outcome for the mother, you know. There are some randomized trials, so again, it's an opinion. And this is why ACOG document was very clear that, that taxamethasone is not really recommended. They said it's still experimental or for research. Dr. Walker, Dr. Van Dettel. Um We don't use dexamethasone either. And uh, in our nice guidelines, we in fact say not to use them because uh, we're not convinced the evidence is there. Um, as far as the management concerned, if you remove the dexamethasone, um, we would do, do the management the other way around. We start with antihypertensive therapy as a first line. In fact, I would have wanted her to have a 200 milligrams of oil when she walked through the door and uh, not uh, waiting for two hours for the blood pressure to get worse. So, um, and, and I would hope that if you started the antihypertensive therapy then she would not have progressed to the disease she had. 
So we do go aggressively with blood pressure. Um, in someone who is sick with um, uh, developing help syndrome, we probably would give magnesium because there is a, it's a, there's an active systemic disease going on and we'd be concerned that, that she may well be more likely to convulse, therefore we'd give magnesium in that situation. Um, what we would do, though, was lower, lower blood pressure, stabilize her, give her magnesium, have that all stabilized, get, monitor her and her baby, and arrange delivery probably within the, the sort of the hours um, after her coming in. We wouldn't wait for two days because we're not waiting for dexamethasone, but we wouldn't be rushing to theater or anything like that in the, in the, in the first hour or so. Um, when we do um, operate on someone, and we probably would deliver her by cesarean section, unless she's got a very favorable cervix, um, then we would be giving platelets at knife to skin uh, just to protect her over the cesarean section, expecting her platelet count to be lowered again after delivery. Um, and then we'd be monitoring her blood pressure, particularly in the postpartum period. We'd keep magnesium going for 24 hours, and as long as she's stable, we would stop it after that period of time. Peter? The task force specifically looked at the randomized trials, which didn't show benefit, but there are some retrospective trials, particularly one that we did that showed that giving the steroids decreased your need for a general anesthetic. You were able to bring the platelet count often high enough that you could get a regional anesthetic count. So that's a potential benefit. Um, so uh, she's in spontaneous labor. So I'm assuming the obstetrician actually knows what labor is. So, uh, so I'm going to so um, actually right. bring, I, I agree with Jim that her blood pressure and magnesium prophylaxis are priorities. I'm going to rupture her membranes. I'm going to get oxytocin going, and I'm going to get that fetus out of there so that we initiate the process of recovery but can expect a transient deterioration over the, over the two to three days postpartum, where she may become seriously unwell. Um, and the Canadian guidelines were slightly softer than the, the British around the steroid issue, um, and, but really have held it back for platelet recovery postpartum, that it could be considered. That's as strong as we've come. Um, you know, maybe the NIH would like to do this trial instead of the other one. Right. <laughs> Can I just correct? I mean, I, I, I forgot she was in serious labor, so what, what we were doing to deliver vaginally and um, stabilizing and deliver vaginally. Before I open this up to the audience again, I'm just, this is for me. I'm curious. How many people use, have used steroids in the setting of HELP syndrome specifically for platelets? Just in treatment, not for, like, you give steroids specifically for HELP syndrome, not for fetal lung maturation. Show of hands. I'll close my eyes so I can't see. But. <laughs> well, if it's just at 17, you want to get the epidural, then I would consider it. Yeah. Steroids are, like, up-to-date to me for this. Like, I don't like to admit I use up-to-date, and <laughs> but I do from time to time, and I do use steroids for help syndrome from time to time. Okay, questions. I'm sorry. Uh, by the way, we, uh, we did send a uh, proposal to NIH in 1998, and they did not fund it to do a randomized trial. <laughs> I, you know. Yes, sir, the white shirt. How much time would you give her to, before you proceed to C-section, for those who want to try to deliver her vagina? I would give her a steroid. Once I control blood pressure, put a mag, I would section her. But for those who want to try to get her delivered vagina, how much time would be? Well, one of the advantages of the dexamethasone approach is that, uh, like John mentioned, it'll help your platelet count to stabilize and come back up. It'll also give you time to do a vaginal deliver, ripening and delivery. Uh, I would allow her at least 12 hours to see that, unless she showed you evidence on fetal monitor tracing that this baby was not doing well, and that's a different matter. But at 38 weeks, I would expect that you, in spontaneous labor, that you could uh, accomplish a vaginal delivery. We attempt vaginal delivery everybody who is, you know, more than 34 weeks. It doesn't matter about their bishop's score or so. 
if they are less than 34 weeks, they are in labor, rapsharman brain, we also induce them. So really the only patients where I think C-section is indicated are those who are very early in gestation and ripe cervix. But anybody 34 weeks or more, we induce them, we don't do elective C-section for them. Dr. Walker. Yeah. I, I would agree with the Chairman. You, you, you'd watch her, her progression in labor if she's progressing well. If she's only you know, one centimeter at this point, then you consider that she's, she may take a long time, so you, you balance that against how well she is. So you're just monitoring how well she is and how she's progressing. At any point, you can intervene. Another One point uh, about uh, anesthesia is that in the UK, when our anesthetists would give spinals in a situation even with low platelets, they wouldn't give epidurals, but they'd give spinals. Peter, did you have a comment? So I, I want to repeat a bloods in three to four hours because it depends how rapidly that platelet count is um, falling and was the first platelet count actually spurious? It wasn't a clotted sample because clearly, I mean, with the, with the liver enzymes where they are, probably not, but you want to be sure of that. What's the mean platelet volume? Is she actually Do you have evidence that she's consuming her platelets? Um, but she's probably going to deliver vaginally if you're willing to, you know, obstarase, um, stand by, be an obstetrician and let her get on with it. Give her as much help as you can, but let her be, you know, be an obstetrician and stand by. Questions from the audience? Uh, there's one other thing to consider, and that is about your question about timing, is that these <coughs> patients, uh, a, a minority of them can be very, very difficult to control their blood pressures. And if, in, in, in our experience, we found they're more easily controlled with the steroids on board. But if they are almost impossible to control with blood pressure, I would accelerate the delivery process. Other questions from the audience? I actually have a question, and I meant to ask it earlier, but... We've talked some about the use of nifedipine for acute control of blood pressure. I wonder if the panel could comment on two things with respect to short-acting nifedipine. One, the concomitant use of magnesium, and two, what are the contraindications for use of short-acting nifedipine? Peter. Um, we had a really good look at it. Um, we, we, I practice in the in the Philippine ca uh, capital of Canada. And there's n we had no evidence of any interaction between nifedipine and mag magnesium sulfate. However, with a population that is increasingly obese, has had type 2 diabetes maybe for decades before they enter pregnancy, the use of nifedipine capsules becomes a greater concern because of the literature from the adult cardiovascular literature, which, because you, you suddenly lose your um, peripheral vascular resistance and that can do nasty things in your coronary sinuses. But that's probably also true of hydralazine, which is the alternative in the States. We just haven't worried about it so much. So I'm not worried at all about her receiving magnesium sulfate and nifedipine at all. But I am concerned, depending on the rest of her, I think she's only 19, and hopefully she doesn't have a BMI of 50, but maybe she does. Um, so I, I would use methodopine capsules, prefer, preferably with her, but if there's any concern at all that she may have either valvular heart disease or she might have coronary artery disease, then I would not use nifedipine in her. But I wouldn't use hydralazine either. I'd use either one of the forms of labetalol or I'd use a nifedipine intermediate acting. Perfect. Any other panel comments on that? Um, again, I have no problem using nifedipine concurrently with magnesium, but with any antihypertensive volume status for the patient, if they're profoundly volume depleted, whether it's hydralazine, labetalol, nifedipine, you run the risk for acutely dropping their blood pressure. 
um, we would use Labitalol 200 milligrams as oral as our, our first line therapy, and we and we would recommend uh, on the nice guidelines uh, say you, you should not use nifedipine capsules. And we, we would use slow release um, nifedipine. The nice guidelines also say there is no problem using nifedipine or using sulfate together. You see, when I started my expectant management back in 1990, it really starts giving magnesium sulfate IV and giving an oral nifedipine rapid acting. So we have been using this since 1990. I don't think you have any. I think you are going to see more sudden decrease with hydralazine and magnesium sulfate, in my opinion, <coughs> than you see it. And, this, and the data that Barton showed you from the study Bill maybe, and the women who were randomized to hydralazine, I don't know if he has it on the slide, 33% mm. of the patients develop fetal distance requires cesarean section. And these are really the patients who have marked price of oil and depletion or you have severe fetal cost restriction. If you lower a blood pressure acutely and the problem with hydralazine, it has this delayed effects. You give it every 10 or every 20 minutes, your peak effect will be in about one hour as I showed in the study. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. The next episode in this series will be Dr. Baha Sabai presenting the fifth and final case, postpartum eclampsia. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology. This episode was brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org.